We're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And here in chapters 24 and 25, a very interesting passage where Jesus talks about the condition of the world in what are known as the end times of the last days in, in human history, uh, in, in this current fallen kind of condition. And so I want to say, even as we're just turning there now, um, if you're kind of new to all of this and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a big subject and we're going to cover a little bit of territory here this morning. So if you're new to all of this and you get lost in there a little bit, don't worry about it. Just pick up what applies to your life for today. And sometimes it takes months and it takes years for all these pieces to come together. And you say, ah, okay, I see it a little more clearly now. So for today is a part of that uh, process. So don't get frustrated or think, man, I don't know if, what this guy's talking about at all. Uh, that is a gift I have. Uh, so on top of a difficult passage, uh, don't get frustrated with yourself or me. Just do what you can here today. That's just a terrible uh, opening for any sermon. But um, by the way, you are taught in seminary or wherever. I have never attended one. That's painfully obvious to you too. But, um, but I, I've heard that you never apologize for a sermon ahead of time. And uh, so... That's a heavily qualified. I'm not apologizing. Here we go. Okay, Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. Jesus speaking, and he said, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming uh, of the Son of Man be. For as in the day... For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, and that word watch is a key word, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. That's a key phrase, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and to drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and in an hour when he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint his portion with the hypocrites. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the parable of the ten virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to the ten virgins, to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise, five were foolish. And those who were foolish took their lamps, but they took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. And then all those virgins arose, and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready, they went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. And after the other virgins came, the foolish virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, or verily, verily, I say to you, I do not know you. And then here's the key word again, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope that is ours in this world, whatever its condition, a hope that is completely in you, Lord, a hope that is outside of the reach 
of the circumstances of our own personal lives and the circumstances of this world. And we thank you, Lord, for your book, this Bible. We thank you for the privilege of being able to turn to it and to hear your voice, Lord, and to receive your revelation. We need your revelation and your perspective in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit present in this room right now and in our lives that you would speak to us and that we would hear your voice clearly today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this portion of Jesus' Olivet Discourse, and that's what we're in the middle of right now, Jesus instructs us as Christians concerning how the coming rapture of the church is to affect and more than affect, indeed dominate all of our thinking, all of our feeling, all of our doing, all of our believing. It is to affect us mentally. It is to affect us emotionally. It's to affect us physically. It's to affect us spiritually. In this chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew, it is Jesus' Olivet Discourse in which he begins the whole discourse in response to two questions posed to him by his disciples all the way back in verse 3 of chapter 24 when they asked him and said, tell us when will these things be? Speaking of the destruction of the temple, Luke handles that question in, in great detail and in, uh, in Luke chapter 17, Matthew concentrates on the second question, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And so this Olivet Discourse is Jesus' description of what is going to be the moral and the physical and the spiritual condition of the world immediately prior to his return to this earth at his second coming. I think it's very important to realize that just as God has given us uh, history in the Bible related to the origin of man, how human history began all the way back uh, in the garden, so too the Bible also gives us a record of how human history is going to end, that man's rebellion against God and, uh, and all of the heartbreaking consequences of that rebellion is not going to go on forever, but one day it's going to come to an end and, and in is going to be ushered uh, a, a, a era and, and something uh, wonderful, a new heavens and a new earth that's incomparably beautiful in the place of all of this for those who know Him and love Him. Now, the end of the age in this world, though, quite different from the new heavens and the new earth, is going to be, will consist of a season of birth pangs, Jesus said, leading up to the rapture of the church, taking Christians into heaven. We saw how it's going to be a time where there are going to be wars and rumors of wars, nations rising against nations, kingdom against kingdoms. There'll be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in various places. There'll be many false prophets who will rise up and speak falsely in the name of God. And many, many people will be deceived by these false prophets and they'll have a tremendously large uh, following. And all of these things are going to uh, be increasing in their frequency and in their intensity as time goes on. Now, following the rapture of, the, of Christians into heaven, there will come a seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation, a time when God is going to pour His wrath out on a rebellious world, a, a sin-loving world, a, a Christ-rejecting world, a Savior-rejecting world. And Jesus has told us earlier in this sermon that it's going to be so horrible that anything that has ever happened in human history is going to pale in comparison to the, the uh, great devastation and horror of, of those days. And we're talking about human history that's already known a worldwide flood. We're talking about human history that's already known world wars and all known very few periods of peace all over the world in its entire history. 
And then at the end of this seven-year tribulation period, Jesus is going to physically return to this earth in what's known as his second coming. This time he comes not as a suffering Savior, but the Bible says he comes as the King of Kings, and he comes as the Lord of Lords. And then he will judge those who survive the great tribulation. He will establish a thousand-year reign upon this earth, during which time Satan will be bound At the end of that thousand years, Satan will be loose to lead one final rebellion against Jesus. You don't have to worry if you're a Christian and say, Oh, will I be suckered by the devil then? You have a new body, you'll be beyond the reach of that temptation. But during that thousand year reign, people, it'll be a forced peace. Jesus will rule in a forced righteousness placed upon the people. They will not have had a choice to accept him or to reject him. Satan is allowed, loosed in order to allow them that choice, and a huge number of people will follow him in that final rebellion. It will test the hearts of those that uh, are on the earth during that thousand years, and then ultimately that will give way to the white throne judgment after which all of this fallen earth and heaven is going to melt with a fervent heat, going to give way to a new heavens and a new earth, the Bible says, where there's no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death, no more war, no more any of these things, just pure, eternal, uninterrupted goodness and holiness in the presence of the Lord. I do like happy endings, and so all of this mess is going to have a happy ending one day for those who put their faith in Christ. Now, I trust if you've never done that, you'll do that uh, this morning. Now, as we've seen in previous uh, studies in this series, the Bible teaches that concerning that period in human history leading up to the rapture of the church, that the world is not going to get better and better, that it, indeed it's going to get worse and worse ultimately. We may be in these spikes where we have a little downturn in terms of the condition of the world and then we have a spike out of it and a down and a spike out. But the day will come where there will be no spike out of it. Uh, things will, in terms of the world, it will begin to destabilize because of sin. Our problems in the world, they are not economic, they are not governmental, they are not... Uh, these kind of things. At, at the core of all the problems of the world, our problems are spiritual. They are moral. They are sin issues. That's what's going on. It is a rebellion against God and His commandments that puts the world in the condition that it's in uh, today. And, and so the day will come when the, it, the world is not going to get better and better, but it will destabilize, it will fragment, it will grow worse and worse physically and morally and spiritually. Again, wars, rumors of wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, pestilence, disease, earthquakes, false prophets, spiritual deception, all that stuff. And as, one of the, as the problems of the world become so great in their size and in and, and their, their numbers, Jesus, I think, knew that all of this would produce, even, not even when the tribulation begins, but even before the rapture, as, as we have the birth pangs of all of this, Jesus knew that this condition of the world would produce a single great question in our lives as his disciples. And the question is, what in the world can I do? What in the world can I do in the middle of all this? I'm just a little nobody, nothing, pipsqueak. What difference can I make in this world? The whole thing's so big. The decisions are so crazy. They have to be spiritually, some demonic spirit behind it. The thing is running so wild. The problems are so big. What in the world does a person like me do to make a difference in the middle of it? I'll tell you, I've never heard people ask that so much as I've heard them ask it in the last six months. What can we do? What can I do? How can I make a difference? I hear it all of the time. And people, as they look at the increasing wickedness and sin of the world and the spiritual deception, how many people fall away from the Lord and go after other things, and they look at the direction of even that our nation is going in with its Christian heritage. They look at the instability of the whole world. 
I feel so small, I want to make a difference. I see it's going in the wrong direction. What can I do? Maybe you said it yourself, or at least you've thought it. And what Jesus does now in this Olivet Discourse is he proceeds to answer that question and to tell us as Christians what we're to do, how we're to live our lives in the middle of this whole end times scenario. And essentially he uh, sums the whole thing up in terms of what we're to do in three words. Watching, waiting, and working. Just handy that they begin, all begin with the letter W. I'm not that clever. It comes right out of the Bible. We'll deal with the working next week, Lord willing. I just want to look specifically, otherwise we'd have a two-hour sermon here today. I just want to look specifically at those first two words, watching and waiting. That the rapture of the church is to find us as Christians actively watching for the return of Jesus. Actively waiting for His return to take us into heaven. We're to be actively busy about His business as we wait for the rapture of the church. Now allow me to say uh, just a couple of things of a technical nature here before we move on to the more practical and applicational teaching of the passage. Because even though it's not of interest to everyone in the room, it is of interest to a certain group in the room And they have a way of catching me at the back door afterwards, and they ask me lots of questions. And so I don't want to think I'm dodging. So really, though, so people can understand why I look at this passage the way that I do. I am inclined to believe that Jesus finishes answering the disciples' specific question of what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age, that he completes that answer in verses 26 through 35, where he describes his second coming, his personal assurance that all that he has spoken of the tribulation and his second coming, that it's going to come to pass. And that beginning in verse 36, Jesus proceeds to give his disciples and to us instruction concerning how we're to live our lives in the light of the spiritual and moral darkness of the last days and the rapture that is approaching. Now here's, here's why I say all of this. There are many people who believe that this passage beginning in verse 36 speaks of Jesus' second coming rather than the rapture of the church. And I want to say that there can be legitimate disagreement on specific issues of, of end times by uh, careful students of the, of the Bible. And all of that is, is perfectly good and all of that is, is perfectly fine. But the reason that I think that this passage speaks more directly to the rapture than to the second coming and, it, and how we apply the passage becomes entirely different based upon whether we see it as the rapture or as the second coming The reason I think it speaks of the rapture is you notice in verse 36, whatever Jesus is talking about here, he describes it as occurring on a day and in an hour that no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but only uh, God the Father in heaven. And so that can only be true of the rapture. Because in Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, we are given the very day of the second coming. Where in chapter 12, verse 11, we're told that you can count off if you were to be foolish enough to find yourself in the Great Tribulation. That when the Antichrist walks into the newly rebuilt temple that he allows the Jews to rebuild in Jerusalem, and he goes into the Holy of Holies, and he plunks himself down in the Holy of Holies, the place that belongs to God alone, and he declares to the whole world that he's God, and then he further demands that everyone worship him as God, Daniel says you can start to count, pull out a three-and-a-half-year calendar wherever you get them at the Hallmark store, and you can start to count 1,290 days, and 1,290 days from the time that that guy does that is going to be the return of the Messiah. So we know the day of, of the second coming. So to me, this can't refer to the second coming. Also in verses 36 and 37, or 37 and 38 rather, the condition of the world immediately before whatever Jesus is talking about here, whether the second coming or the rapture, 
the attitude of the people in the world, they're going to be careless. There's going to be this carefree, careless attitude of eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. And to me, it doesn't seem possible that that can be a description of the world at the end of the Great Tribulation. You read Revelation chapter 6 through 19, this world isn't going to look anything like what it looks like right now. You talk about entire mountain ranges that are going to disappear. You're going to talk about bodies of water that were in one place at one point in time and they're in another place at another point in time. It is going to be a worldwide devastation. Nobody's going to be sitting at cafes drinking coffee and wondering what they're going to have for lunch. And who's going to get married this weekend? Or what's the next big event or vacation we're going to take? That doesn't fit there to me. That's just me. It, fit, it fits the rapture a little bit better. And then notice also in verses 40 through 44, Jesus then exert, exhorts his disciples to be ready for an unexpected uh, coming. So again, this can't refer to the second coming because again, the second day of the second coming isn't unexpected. Uh, people will know the very day. Well, someone might say, what about verse 39, where these events are just plainly spoken of in the context of Jesus' coming? Uh, notice the coming of the Son of Man. Well, it's very true. But the end time scenario involves two comings of Jesus. First, His coming for the church at the rapture, where we're called up to meet Him in the air. And then second, his second coming with the church to the earth at the end of the tribulation. And it seems to me that it's best to understand this coming of the Son of Man as referring to the rapture. Now, I'll put half of you out of your misery by returning now to this consideration of the question that uh, Jesus knew we, we would ask as his disciples, what can I individually do? How am I to live in the middle of this world that you're describing is going to characterize the world immediately before the rapture? I want to make a difference. How can I make a difference? And Jesus tells us that we are to be watching and waiting for his coming at the rapture. You notice there in chapter 24, uh, verse 42, I had you notice, watch therefore. Verse 44, be ready. Uh, chapter 25, verse 13, watch. So someone might uh, then ask, all right, what are we supposed to do? We're going to head down to uh, a local furniture store, get the most comfortable uh, lazy boy recliner that we can get, and just recline back and stare up into the sky and be watching and waiting for Jesus' return and have people bring bonbons to us and other slippers and other things that we might need. Is that what he's talking about in, in terms of watching? I want you to notice in this passage, Jesus gives us several very practical ways that uh, we can be watching and waiting and how it is to manifest itself in our lives. What does that watching and waiting look practical, like practically? Notice in verse 36, because we don't know the day or the hour, we are to have, Jesus says, the mental attitude that Jesus could come for us at any time. So watching and waiting isn't inactive. It isn't sitting on a chair and looking up to the sky or going up on a hill and looking up to the sky till he comes. That's not, not what it, it is. It isn't idle. The word watch in verse 42 carries the idea of keeping awake, keeping watch. Keeping watchful, vigilant, staying alert to Jesus' promised return. It isn't that we have to discipline our minds in this regard, though I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But the Bible declares concerning us as Christians that we are the bride of Christ and Jesus is our groom. And on the wedding day, I have yet to perform a wedding where I have met the bride before the wedding ceremony where I had to get her somehow excited about the moment she's going to see her groom. I think I would call off the wedding if that were the case. Because the bride loves the groom, it is effortless 
for the bride to look forward to the coming of of the groom. Love takes care of all of that. And as we fall more and more in love with Jesus, thinking of His soon return, it just becomes effortless. It, it begins to just dominate our thinking. You walk, talk with anyone that's walked with the Lord for any length of time and they have a love relationship with the Lord and you remind them that the Lord could come back for us at any time. You never hear them say, oh, that's right, I've got to discipline myself to think that. They'll, typically they'll say, oh, I can't wait. Because it's the heart of the bride and we're the bride of Christ, the Bible teaches Number two, notice in verses 37 through 39 that we're going to need to maintain an attitude of watching and waiting while we're living in the middle of a world that is becoming more and more wicked and more and more indifferent to God as it becomes enslaved by sin and and, uh, wickedness. Jesus said that at the time of the rapture, the world is going to become like the world was in Noah's day when God judged the whole world with, with a flood. In Noah's day, the world was marked, if you went back to Genesis, I've done it for you. It was a time of great wickedness. And we know nothing about that, but just imagine a world filled with great wickedness. A time of widespread sexual immorality. Again, you're going to have to imagine, I know, but... That's the way that it was. God says in the last days it will be like that. A time of widespread, what the Bible calls unnatural sexual practices. A time of very strong demonic influence and even involvement in the sexual practices of mankind. A time when violence will become commonplace. I mean, you'll just eat your Cheerios in the morning and... Read about how many murders and this thing and these people and they're decapitated and this thing and the violence and we just become uh, immune to it. The time of man giving himself to evil imaginations continually. In other words, the minds of man given over to uh, coming up with even greater, greater uh, expressions of evil to explore. So in those days it would have been the movie makers, it would have been the television uh, producers and writers, the writers of the books and the magazines and the music and the entertainment, all of it designed to give expression to evil imaginations continually. A time when any standard of right and wrong, not just God's standard, but any standard of right and wrong had been virtually wiped out until the Bible says good had become called evil and evil was being called good. And the response of of Noah's generation to all of this, to God's rebuke of their sin through Noah as he built that ark for 100 years, it wasn't repentance, it wasn't sackcloth and ashes, it was complete indifference. Eating, drinking, what are you going to have lunch? What will you order? What, when's the next, who's getting married next? Where are you going on vacation? Again, what's the next big event? It's amazing to me as we sit here today as Christians with some knowledge of Bible prophecy and what it says about what will characterize the world in the last days spiritually and socially and geopolitically. The rebirth of the miraculous rebirth of the nation of Israel. A major military power to her immediate north that's hostile toward her with allies in the Middle East that will join that great military power and attack upon uh, Israel seeking its destruction, to see a confederation of nations out of the old Roman Empire, that is Europe, possessing the potential to dominate the world if they only had the right leader, the increasing instability of so many nations in the world and thus the whole world itself, increasing sin and wickedness, rebellion against God's commandments. The world, as it looks at all of these things happening all around it, it's just like at the time of Noah, the response is a collective yawn. 
just totally focused on the nothing and the insignificant in life, eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. Nothing's going to change. No judgment's coming. Everything's going to go on as it always has, and they're completely oblivious to the danger that they're in. And living as if the prophetic scriptures had never been written, not realizing that their very indifference is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. I hear all the hubbub. I have read the reviews, and if you read anything, the newspapers or news online or all, you're always aware of what's the latest blockbuster that's going on in the world. So now we've got 2012, the movie 2012, as I've read about. And something about the Mayan prophecy of 2012 being the date of the end of the earth and all these things. And I've, it's made approaching... Um, half a billion dollars worldwide in just the two or three weeks that it's out. I mean, people like to go out there and you know, scare themselves uh, to, uh, to death. And yet, the Bible, which contains the absolute truth about a very real end in human histories, lies increasingly unopened by the people of the world. And it would seem to me that Noah's life and the mention of Noah is intended to supply us with some practical instruction regarding how to conduct ourselves while living in the midst of this kind of a generation, while realizing a frightening judgment is coming. I once heard a speaker speak of Noah, and he described him as an example of how to stay afloat. He built an ark. How to stay afloat in a world that's sinking. I thought that was very clever, obviously, because I've just made it a part of this sermon. <laughs> this is very good, though. How to stay afloat in a world that's sinking, and that's what he did. Number one, he maintained a relationship with God despite being surrounded by great wickedness. You say, what in the world can I do? How can I make a difference? Everything is gone. Well, how can I maintain a relationship with God, even in the face of all of the temptations and the wickedness that surround us every single day? And Noah's life teaches us that we can do it. Noah was a man who was committed to walking with God, even if no one else in the world did. It's just eight of them got saved. The whole world, eight of them walked with God. And they made that commitment even if the whole world rejects the God of the Bible. I'm not going to reject with Him. I'm committed to walking with Him. Noah, he, as he witnessed this exploding wickedness around him, it made him uh, only even more committed to living a holy life and a, and a different life in the midst of it. I tell you, it produces that in me. I come from, and it's not that I'm immune to the temptations of the world. One of the crazy things about right now in the United States, and really it's the whole world, the access to sin, the expression of sin. I mean, you can just go out and sin, get anything you want if you've got 50 cents just about today. But the crazy thing about it is because sin's become so accessible, it's become so inexpensive is that we see the consequences of it so much more quickly. It's no secret what it turns people into, what it does to their lives. And it makes it easier, as is in the day of Noah, to say, I don't want to become that. Already been there, already done that, already went a hundred yards down that path. I don't need to go ten miles down that path to discover there's no future in it. And Noah teaches us that a solitary holiness is possible even if the whole world follows the devil and only a handful follow God. In order to be faithful to God, he didn't accept the world's definitions for right and wrong, but he made God's standards his standards. He believed God's warning that judgment was coming and it made a difference in his life. 
The Bible says he was moved with godly fear. That is, he was more concerned with what God thought of him than what others thought of him or were saying about him. And he lived a life of simple obedience to God's word. God told him to build an ark. He built an ark. He did all, the Bible says, that God commanded him to do. And through all of it, he persevered. Through all of the jokes that would have been leveled against him, Building an ark in the dry ground in a world that had never known rain. And he's talking about a flood that's coming in judgment. You talk about the rapture. You talk about the tribulation. People think you're crazy. That's never happened before. In Noah's time, it had never rained. And in one day, it started to rain, and it didn't stop for 40 days and 40 nights till the whole earth was covered. And the waters that came out from the foundation of the earth. Now he persevered through all the scoffing, through all the indifference, all the lukewarmness, through all the hard work that it took to do that building and to work for God in the building of that ark. And he just kept going and that ark was completed through perseverance. And Jesus is warning that at the end of the age, the general attitude of the whole world toward a coming judgment is going to be complete indifference or unbelief. That the tribulation will come upon them as, a flood, as the flood did in Noah's day. It will be sudden. It will be unexpected. It will be universal. And so as we live for God in this period in human history, it's important that we not let man's unbelief and indifference surprise us or silence us or to cause us to be stumbled. Notice thirdly in verses 40 through 41 that the rapture will mean an instantaneous separation of the saved, that is those who are Christians, and the unsaved in this world. Luke's gospel talks about two people being in one bed. So it literally says two men. It means two people. Sometimes the homosexual community will look and say, there's the verb. It means two people. And Jesus, speaking to the culture that he was, a highly moral culture, the only thing that would come into their mind would be a husband and a wife sharing the same bed. And so two people in one bed, one will be taken and the other will be left. And it speaks of marriage where at the time of the rapture, one spouse is a Christian and the other isn't. And in one instant, one will be gone and the other will be left behind. He speaks of two that will be in the field. One will be left and the, uh, taken and the other will be left. This speaks of the workplace. In an instant, a co-worker is going to be gone. Another worker is going to be left there alone. Two will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other will be left. And they're grinding at the mill. Don't think about a gigantic mill where, you know, they're making wonder bread or something. A mill was a, a millstone where the women in the morning, the family would come together. Large families would, uh, would all live in the same kind of compound. And so the women would come together, family members, and they would begin to, with the mortar and, and all with the wheat and, and all, to begin to make the, the day's meals. And so in the, even within a family, part of the family will be gone and part of a family will be left. And it's going to produce an awful separation. Wives from husbands, children from parents, brothers from sisters, friends from friends, co-workers from co-workers. And today the righteous and the unrighteous mingle together, the good and the evil, the good and the bad, the believing and the unbelieving. But one day the righteous, the good, the believing will be gone from the world, leaving only the unbelieving and the unrighteous and the evil. Notice number 4 in verses 43 through 44. Jesus tells us that we're to be watching for the rapture with a greater watchfulness than a homeowner that's been tipped off that a burglar is going to come and steal, rob his house. Now you tell a homeowner that's got a bunch of stuff in his house that's valuable, you tell him that a burglar is going to come to his house and attempt to rip him off. What's going to be his response to that? He's going to go into high alert. 
You're not going to have to tell him to be watching and waiting. He's going to go inside that house and he's going to be, it just is the most heightened alert of watching and waiting that you can imagine for when this burglar is going to be coming and, and attempting to, to rip him uh, off. And Jesus is saying, how much more alert should we be as a result of Jesus' heads up concerning the coming rapture? And then number five, in verses 45 through 47, the rapture should catch us being faithful to uh, God where He's placed us, even in the midst of great wickedness. In other words, just as a good employee will be a good, hard-working employee, whether his boss is around or his boss is absent, in the same way, a good Christian will be just as faithful in serving and obeying the Lord when in, in Jesus' absence as in His presence. And the result will be that the rapture will find us being faithful. Notice also number 6 in verses 48 to 51 that it's vital that the rapture does not catch us in a backslidden or hypocritical lifestyle. And here Jesus describes the kind of person who doesn't believe that Christ is returning soon. So he or she begins to live down to the level of the world that he or she lives in. And then the rapture catches them living a life of hypocrisy and we can safely say in terms of Jesus' response here that such a servant will live to greatly regret their evil choices. And then it's also, and finally, uh, vital to notice that the rapture, uh, vital that the rapture not catch us, talking about the parable of the ten virgins, that it not catch us religious but unsaved. And that's the great, that's the great lesson of the parable of the ten virgins that it does not catch a person merely religious, but unsaved. Jesus is using an image here in this parable. It was very, very familiar to his listeners, a Jewish wedding progression. In those days when you would get uh, married, there were three steps to a marriage. Number first step would be when you were probably a child, the parents would work out who you were going to be uh, to marry, and uh, so that would all be set up. And, and before you ever, you know, sometimes before you could even talk, and so you were paired off with someone. The commitment made by the family, but then there would be this uh, a invitation would then as a wedding day would grow closer, an invitation would go forth from the groom to everyone that was going to be invited to the wedding. And in those days, there was a lot of preparation. They couldn't just go down to Costco and just buy a whole explorer full of food and bring it to the thing, you know, a lot of preparation. So the word would go out, hey, this wedding day is getting very, very close here, so be ready for the, the second invitation, which would then be sent out and say, okay, everything's ready, now come on. So the first invitation that's given in a wedding is the invitation that Jesus gave us 2,000 years ago when he gave us the gospel, to come on in and become, become his bride. Now we're waiting for the rapture of the church, the, the call to say, come on up here, the wedding's ready, let's, uh, the whole ceremony, let's get you up into heaven and, and move forward in this, this whole thing. And so there were two invitations to a wedding in those days. And that, that invitation for this, that second invitation to actually come to the wedding could happen any time, day or, or, or night. And so with that second invitation, the bridegroom would go out and he'd get his bride and uh, so that's the imagery that Jesus was using that everybody understood. In the parable itself, there are ten virgins. Uh, the thing that makes them alike is they all have a lamb. Uh, but five of the virgins are wise. Five of them were told are foolish. And the wise ones are, are wise because they have a lamp and they have oil to put in the lamp. The foolish virgins are those that have a lamp. But they don't bring any oil. Now, what's the good of having a lamp if you don't have any oil? But that's the condition that they were in. I mean, bring them both. Either have a lamp, either don't have a lamp and don't have oil, or have a lamp and have oil. 
So evidently they, they brought the lamp because they wanted to look like the five wise, but they didn't really believe that the bridegroom was really going to come, that this is going to happen. And, and so the five wise, they have a lamp, and they also have oil, oil in, in the Bible, typically a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so only five are really born again by the Holy Spirit. The other five are just uh, knew how to keep up appearances. So they wanted to hang around Christians, and this is all this is very exciting. And they had a lamp, but they didn't have any oil, no indwelling of the Holy Spirit, no spiritual uh, birth. And then the bridegroom, we're told in verse 5, was delayed between the first and second invitations. And uh, while that was happening, uh, verse 5, that delay, all ten of the virgins, they slumbered and they slept. There's no uh, blame attached to any of this. It's talking about a physical sleep here. You can be watching and waiting while you're sleeping. It's the attitude of the heart. And so as long as, you, uh, uh, as long as we have oil in our lamp, it's okay to physically sleep. And then at midnight, verse 6, we're told that uh, the, a cry went out declaring that the bridegroom is coming. So everyone goes out to meet him. All ten of them, they rise and they want to trim their, their lamps in order to, to light them up because it's dark and they want to have some light to travel from where they're located to the, the groom's house. The foolish don't have any oil, so they ask for oil of, of the wise. The wise, verse 9, object. If you, we give oil to you, we're not going to have enough oil. This isn't something you share. You've got to get your own oil. And so the foolish went off to buy oil. And while they're gone, the bridegroom came, verse 10. And those who were ready went with the bridegroom to the wedding, and the door was shut. And afterward, the foolish came, demanding that the door be opened to them also, verse 11. And then notice there in verse 12, the answer of the groom. He said, verily, verily, I say to you, I do not know you. They had no personal relationship with him. And what we learn is that what is necessary in order to enter into heaven, into this marriage feast, is a personal relationship with Jesus. It's not good enough to hang around Christians. It's not good enough to go to church. It's not good enough to go to, uh, you know, religious institutions and buildings and w events or any of those kind of things. I must have a personal relationship with Jesus. And how does a person do that? By being born again. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You say, what, what in the world does being born again mean? So they could have used born again to talk about all kinds of things today. Born again brownies. Born again movie stars where their career was in the dumps and then now they've got a great career again. What does it mean to be born again? Every one of us was born once when we were born physically into the world. To be born again a second time, it speaks of a spiritual birth. And we experience that spiritual birth when a person comes to God on a day like today, in a place like this, or sitting in a living room, or in a bedroom, or walking down a street in Modesto, and says to God, God, I believe your assessment of me. I am a sinner. I've been less than perfect all of my life. And I believe that my sin has separated me from a personal relationship with you. And I believe I've been created for that relationship. But I also believe that you loved me enough in my sinful condition that you sent your Son Jesus to die on the cross to pay the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of my sins. And I believe He was buried and He rose again on the third day. And I believe that He is the Savior and that is the salvation that pleases you. And so I repent today. I turn from the direction that I'm going in life. And I turn to you and I put my faith in Jesus and I give you my life now for you to use however you see fit all of the rest of this life and all of the life to come. And when a person says something like that to God and means it in their heart, God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit comes into their lives and they are born again 
by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now indwells us. And all of that is there for the asking. And all of that is there for the receiving. Do you know how many people I talk to on a regular basis who are highly religious people, but you ask them, are you born again? They don't even know what it means. They've been raised in churches and institutions that claim to be Christian that have been so negligent that they have failed to tell their congregants that the only way you can get into heaven is not by good works or coming here or attending here or giving here. You have got to be born again. You must put your faith in Jesus Christ. You must have a personal relationship with God through Him. It's so many people who have never heard or you then tell them what Jesus says, the necessity of being born again. And because their institution has never told them that, or does not emphasize that, they hardly believe it when you show it to them in the Bible. The single most important thing a person can do to be prepared and watching and waiting and ready for the rapture is to be born again by the Holy Spirit by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Are you born again? I don't care if you like me. I don't care if you dislike me. I do care. I wouldn't have brought it up. But I don't care supremely whether you do or not. I don't care if you get saved here and go to another church. I don't care. All I care about is that you know the way to be saved. Everyone has a right to know that information. What you do with it after that, that is your responsibility. My responsibility is that you know. Are you born again? Have you put your faith in Christ for salvation? Do you know that if you were to die today, or the rapture were to occur today, that you would go into heaven with Jesus? You can know that. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after our service. And they'll have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to put your faith in Christ and begin a true, living, unbelievably wonderful personal relationship with God and with Jesus. It's there for the receiving. It's there for the asking. And it's more real than the seats you sit on right now. And it's just a prayer away. And these men and women would love to pray with you to begin that relationship. Those of us who already know the Lord, in terms of what do we do, how can we make a difference, we can't make any difference in this world if we are not watching and waiting for His return. But that's just part one. And I'm thankful for this description, practical description, of what that looks like in terms of holiness and purity and focus that Jesus gives here. But I'm going to ask you to hold that thought because we complete the picture next week and it all comes together. Let's stand together and we'll pray. If you're here this morning and...